Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. I would never choose to teach a passage like this because I'm a coward. Um, and, and that's only half true. Um, the other half of it is uh, I love passages like this, actually, and not because I necessarily uh, enjoy this particular content and think everybody needs to hear it, um, nor because I'm a glutton for punishment, but because it, um, it forces us to read our Bibles carefully. And, and that's an important thing. There are a lot of passages that we like, and when we like something, we are far less likely to kind of push more deeply into it and ask it hard questions. If we hear a message that we like, we are way less likely to question it and try to understand it and tease it apart because we don't want it to be wrong, and so we just like what it says, and so we're like, good, that's, that must be true, and let's move on. And it's only when we hear things or read things that we don't think are true or we don't want to be true that it forces us to then go, well, but like, what is it really saying? And we, we have to tease it apart. And so what I love about a passage like this is it doesn't say things we want it to say, right? Like when we get, finally get to 1 Corinthians 11, this is going to be the world's longest introduction. Uh, but when we finally get to 1 Corinthians 11, um, we're going to have a framework to be able to say, okay, what is it that this passage actually says? What is it that it's not saying? Let's, let's at least get down and be confronted with the truth of what it is saying and not get hung up on things it's not saying. Okay, so I do kind of love passages like this for that reason because it forces us to kind of be careful and, and really figure out what the scriptures say to us. So to do that, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 and we'll eventually get to 1 Corinthians 11, but it's going to be a minute. So turn to Genesis chapter 1 if you, uh, if you have a Bible. It should be around page one. Uh, if you uh, are on an app, it, it, yeah, just go to Genesis 1. We use this passage a lot uh, as the foundation for a lot of ideas because it is biblically the foundation for a lot of ideas. So much is jammed into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that it's almost a shame that it's about creation because people get hung up on the, all the wrong parts of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 when it really is a theological foundation for an entire biblical worldview um, and we get hung up on dates and times and orders and those kinds of things. So um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we've read it a lot here because it's kind of where we got our name, uh, but let's start there. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The reason why we talk about this passage so much is it is the foundation of our understanding of human rights. Uh, I was reading a book by an author I really like named Chuck Klosterman, who is not a Christian at all, and he was talking about the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and how it has established for our country uh, the, the idea of basic human dignity and rights. And the idea of equality that we today take for granted was based in this idea that 
uh, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. And Chuck Klosterman makes the comment that this, the, the, the uh, kind of clause about the fact that we're endowed by our creator is basically unnecessary to an understanding of human rights. And I would say, with all due respect, Mr. Klosterman, you're dead wrong. Because without the divine declaration of human rights, um, we have a, a, a human history full of people taking advantage of other people's rights, and we have otherwise no real foundation from which to say, you're just as valuable as me. So we don't have a philosophical foundation without that kind of divine declaration, and we don't have a, any kind of motivation for that to be true otherwise, right? If anything, if we're, we kind of take out the divine part, if anything, we have motivation to take advantage of anyone who is different than us, and especially if they are weaker than us in any way, all of our motivation should be to take advantage of them and rule over them. But it is only because of the scriptures that we have, and the Western world at all, has an understanding of basic human rights. And this is where it's founded. That we are made in the image of God. Male and female made equally uh, worthy of honor and dignity and value because God made us in his image. Okay? So that's framework piece number one that Christians believe about people. Number two, turn the page to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we'll start in verse 15. So Genesis 2 is kind of a retelling of the creation story with an emphasis on uh, mankind. And so it says this in, in 2.15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, the tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And those of us who've grown up in church know that this is the first time that God says anything about his creation is not good or very good, okay? So the first thing he says is not good is that man should be alone. He says, I will, take, uh, I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So just imagine this and, and just don't get hung up on the historical nature of all of this for this moment. Just imagine this, this thing. God looks down on creation, sees man, says this isn't good, man should not be alone. And so forms all of the animals and all the birds and all the things around us and kind of marches them in front of the man to find a, a suitable fit for him. I mean, this is, this is like season one of The Bachelor here, right? right? Like all of these animals and Adam's got the rose and he's like, well, maybe the elephant, no, it's too big, it's not my, whatever, like the whole thing. And they get to the end of it and God goes, nope, none of those are a fit. There was, they, he flirted with the antelope a bit, but it just, there was no chemistry. And, uh, and, and so finally God goes, okay, we got to solve this problem. So that's, that's all in the Bible, it's fine. 
The man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the heavens, all the beasts of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up in, pl uh, in place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So after some amount of time of just spending time with the animals, Adam sees a naked woman, <laughs> bursts into song, as you would, and, uh, and, and God unites them as one flesh and says, this, this, is, uh, this is the plan from here on out. Good luck. Okay, so that's number two. God, man could not accomplish alone the, the job that God gave to mankind, right? So in Genesis 1, God forms the man and says, your job is to have dominion over the whole earth. That means to cultivate, care for, and protect it. That's your job. God looks down on the earth and goes, actually, man can't do that by himself. Man cannot accomplish the thing for which God created mankind for. And so God creates woman so that they together could accomplish what God gave mankind to do. Okay? So this begins to form our idea of kind of what we are for and how we fit together. Number three. Turn all the way to the back to Ephesians chapter 5, another passage we've talked about recently. Ephesians 5, it's another one that we all love, starting in verse 22. Paul starts out really strong. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we all say, oh, amen, obviously. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, as him, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, okay, famously, this is a problem. Right, like this is the passage that, uh, you know, we read in this culture and we're like, well, okay, this is a major problem. Women should not have to submit to their husbands. This is old. This is traditional. This are, these are gender roles that are inappropriate for today's world. Okay, fair enough. He continues, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, quoting Genesis 1, and the two shall become, or Genesis 2, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's where it gets hard. Here's the beginning of where it gets hard. 
We don't like the idea that women, that wives, are asked to submit to their husbands. Um, I would argue that the husbands aren't exactly getting off easy in this deal as they are asked to love their wives both as much and in the same way that they love themselves and, more importantly, that they're supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which is he died for the church, right? So as difficult, and I don't want to underestimate how difficult it might be for a wife to submit to her husband, I would argue it is at least as difficult an ask uh, to say, husbands, love your wives as much as you love yourself, which I'll be honest, that's a lot, and uh, the way that Christ loved the church. Now, I read this, and I, and I hear the like, well, don't ask me to submit thing. I get that. And honestly, my response is, deal. I won't ask you to submit to me if you don't ask me to die for you and love you like I love myself. Like there's a part of me that goes, I, I think I'd take that deal. Like we could just kind of be partners. We could just enter into a handshake agreement about like, I'll do some stuff, you do some stuff, we'll hang out together until we don't want to anymore. Like that actually feels like a better deal for me some days. I'll be honest about that. And unfortunately, this is the kind of arrangement a lot of people are entering into these days when it comes to marriage. Kind of an agreement that we'll be together as long as we want to be together, as long as it works, as long as it's functioning for both of us. That's how long we'll be in this contract together. And then when it's not, it's not. And we'll move on and it's okay. This is not God's vision for marriage from the very beginning. That it would be an expression not just of oneness and not just of love, but it would in fact be an expression of God's relationship with God's people. So he says, submit because wives, you are imaging the, all of humanity's right response to God. And men, love your wives as you love yourself and as Christ loved the church in, in that sense to image God's love for all of his creation, okay? So why do I start with these? Because when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, and, and we're about to, um, there, there, Paul is, is, is drawing on all of these ideas as he gets into a very specific situation that was happening in the church in Corinth. Okay? So he's going to draw on a, an, a, a creational idea of marriage. He's going to draw on uh, man's need for woman. He's going to draw on his, word, his own words in Ephesians and these ideas uh, that he teaches in Ephesians of kind of how we are to relate to each other. And he's addressing a very specific situation here in Corinth. So finally, I think I've done enough introduction. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll back up and, uh, and, and kind of teach through it. He says, now, actually we'll start in verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. 
For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Yay. Okay. So what do we do with this passage? I am tempted, um, as I sit to prepare a passage like this, I, I am tempted to, uh, to kind of apologize for the text. And, and my sermon just becomes this like one long apology for I'm sorry, but it says it and I can't get around it. And I, and I, I, I don't know, I'm sorry, amen. That sounds like a terrible sermon. And I don't want to apologize for the Bible because whatever it is, is. Whatever it says, we believe, is the word of God. And so uh, even though my, my instinct or my, my gut reaction is to apologize for what the text says, that doesn't actually let me off the hook. Because if we read a text like this and go, well, you know, I mean, come on, right, or some strong argument like that, um, then, then we begin to kind of undermine the Bible itself, and, and we can find ourselves in a place where we go, well, you know, there's some parts of the Bible that just really aren't relevant anymore, and we can just, and that ends up being a reflection of what you want to be true and not what the Scriptures actually say, which at the end of the day is just you talking about what you like and slapping some, a little bit of Bible on it, which just feels like a bad idea. So what I do want to do with this text is to be very careful with it, to make sure we understand what it does say, and to make sure we understand what it does not say, and then call all of us, as we will see, to submit to what it does say. Okay? So let's dive in. Start back in verse 2. It says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Paul does this every once in a while where he goes, you guys are doing great, and then rips them. Uh, and it's a, it's a communication technique, I think. I love you guys. Now you're the worst. Okay, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Stop. Okay, we're going to go real slow. I told you we're going to be careful. The head of every man is Christ. Okay, what does that mean? Men, that means that you are under authority, that you are not the boss of your own self and your own life, that this is where Paul starts. He's going to get into some stuff about women. He's going to get into more stuff about men, but he starts by saying, men, in case for a moment you think you're in charge of this world, you're wrong. 
You are, you are in submission. You are under authority. God is in charge. Christ is our chief shepherd. Christ is our king. Christ is our Lord. You are not the top of the heap. So that's where he starts. Number two, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, we start to go, okay, well, this is, now it's, we're getting a little, we're getting in our business, right? We, as, they, as they say, we've gone from preaching to meddling, right? And, uh, and so here's, here's where it gets fun. He says, first, men, you are under authority uh, under Christ. Wives, your head is your husband. And we immediately go, well, what does that mean? And, and why would he, why would there be an order to this thing in terms of, does that mean I'm not as valuable? Does that mean I'm not as important? What does that, what does that mean that my husband is my head? Well, the very next clause gives us an idea. Because what does he say? The head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is the Father. The head of the Son is the Father. So now we're presented with a, with a challenge, right? Because if we read that the head of every wife is her husband, and we read that in terms of hierarchy of value, then we've got some real problems with the Trinity. Because now we're saying, actually, the son is lower than the father. And this was a heresy that was beaten down in the very early church to say, no, the father and the son are equal. And the father, the son, and the spirit are equal. In fact, the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, goes to great lengths to say exactly that. That the father, the son, and the spirit are co-equal in power, they are of the same substance, that they are all divine. Okay, so then we work backwards in our text from there and go, okay, well, if head doesn't mean value or hierarchy, what does it mean? Okay, so quick theology lesson for you all. Um, theologians talk about the Trinity in two kind of ways. One is what they call the ontological trinity, and the other is the economic trinity. Um, theologians pick words to make them sound smart, okay? This is what that means. The trinity as it is, is the ontological trinity. Ontology is the study of being, okay? So the ontological trinity is the trinity as it is. The economic trinity is the trinity as it does, easy way to think about that. So we would say, and all Christians have said, ontologically, or as it is, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal. Completely equal in every way. Completely divine in every way. And yet, the Trinity as it does, the economic Trinity, there is a clear difference in who does what. This is, we see this in the Gospels all over the place where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, but he also says, I do whatever the Father tells me. He says that the Father sent me. He says at the end of John, I will send you the Spirit. So the Nicene Creed says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We know that from before the foundations of the earth that the Father made the plan of salvation and he sent the Son to die on the cross. But we also know that no thing was created outside of the creative work of Jesus. 
So there's all of these passages throughout the scriptures that clue us into the fact that there's no difference ontologically or as they are, their value, but there is a lot of difference between what they do. And at least for Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they don't seem to mind the arrangement. Right? Jesus over and over honors the Father by saying, whatever, whatever the Father tells me to do, I do it. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. And he says so in a way that glorifies the Father. This was not said as a complaint. Right? So we read in Genesis 2 that God could not find a helper suitable for Adam, and so he makes Eve as the helper. And we go, well, who am, you know, you're saying that women are helpers to men? Yes, the same way that the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit is a helper. Yes. That's exactly what we're saying. The, 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 the relationship between husband and wife are, are most closely mirrored by the relationship within the Trinity between Father, Son, and Spirit. So from the very beginning, we've got this understanding of a relationship between husband and wife that is very different from our own. Because in our world, we don't separate activity from being. That what you do is what you are. What you do is your value. Your, your activity or your, your value is rooted in your activity. This is one of our kind of particular idolatries. That we cannot separate the work that we do or the position that we have or whatever the case may be. All, all of the things that we do suggest something about how valuable we are. And so we say, oh, I do this, and that conveys value to a person rather than, oh, well, I do this work or I do this job. I know, um, for instance, my wife has felt the burden of um, in conversations that she has with other women when she says, I'm a stay-at-home mom, and they, you know, implicitly communicate like, oh, okay, that's cute. And then when she says, oh, but, you know, when the kids are out of, uh, out of the house, you know, I look forward to going back to grad school and, and having a career. And they go, oh, okay. Oh, okay, good, good, good. As if one were better than the other and if one were a reflection on her basic value in the world. Okay, so we do this to each other, and this is part of kind of who we are and part of the human experience. And so when we come to passages about what we do, we, not God, imbues those conversations with value that God never intended as a reflection of himself, never intended. We've done that, but not God. Okay, so let's continue. Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife were not, uh, will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. All right, what is going on here? This is a big one because all the ladies with short hair are like, uh-oh. One, one commentator explains it this way. As background for understanding Paul's point in this verse, 
Roman men sometimes practiced the custom of pulling the loose folds of their, of their toga, not yoga, of their toga over their head as an act of piety in their worship of pagan gods. Paul thus draws on the example of this pagan custom to make the point that men should not dishonor Christ by praying according to pagan custom. Okay, so stop there. So when he says men should not cover their heads in prayer or prophesy, when they pray or teach or prophesy, he's referring to, one, a very specific custom happening uh, in, in Corinth amongst the Roman kind of pagan uh, worshipers where they would pull their, you know, their hoodie up over their head as an act of piety. This was and is a reflection of the relationship that those men believed that they had with God. In other words, if you know anything about ancient Roman culture, often they would cover their heads as protection because the gods they served kind of hated them or at best tolerated them. And so pulling, it up, pulling their toga up over their head was kind of like a I hope they don't notice me kind of deal and, and, and an act of like worship that reflected the relationship that those men had with their gods. Paul says, when you walk into a Christian church acting like a pagan, you are communicating that the relationship you have with God is the same as the relationship the pagans have with pagan gods, and that just isn't the case. Pagans pull their toga up over their head because they are afraid of their God. They don't have personal relationship with their God. They don't bear the image of their God. We do. So why would you men walk into church covering your head as if your God hated you and didn't make you in his own image and that your very presence doesn't glorify him? The commentator continues. He then uses the idea to prepare the way for his arguments that is actually absurd for wives to pray or prophesy in public with their heads uncovered. A married woman who uncovered her head in public would have brought shame to her husband. The action may have connoted sexual availability or may simply have been a sign of being unmarried. Okay? So again, in Roman pagan culture, women who were sexually available or single would purposely wear their hair down. They would not cover their heads, especially when they went into the temple. There was probably some overlap with the fact that many of these pagan temples, the, the worship itself was uh, involved prostitutes. And so there was some overlap in that idea as well. And so again, Paul is saying, why are you women walking into church looking like and acting like these pagan women who we all know what they are trying to communicate. Why would you, as Christian women, wives to your husbands, walk into church suggesting with all the cultural kind of ways to dress and do your hair and all that, saying, I'm not married and or sexually available, right? So this begins to make a lot more sense of this passage, doesn't it? Because he's saying, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for it is the same as if it were shaven. In other words, and he'll continue here in a moment talking about more specifically what this means, but he's saying, you're walking into church pretending like you're a pagan. 
You are giving off the, the, the cultural kind of cues that you are a pagan Roman just like your neighbors are with a particular way of being in the world, with a particular way of understanding your relationship with God, and a particular way of understanding your relationship with each other because marriage wasn't understood the same way amongst the pagans either. And he's saying, men, you're walking in and portraying an idea of God that just isn't true. And wives, you're come walking into church portraying an availability that is absolutely dishonoring to your husband. And this is not culturally conditioned, right? If, if my wife or a, any wife walked into church and used some kind of 21st century Seattle cultural cues to suggest that she was not married or available, that would be deeply dishonoring to me. So the, the underlying core here is not hard for us to understand. Where it gets difficult is with the particular cultural expression of it, right? So for us, uh, the length of a woman's hair has nothing to do with her singleness or marriedness, right? Like that's got nothing to do with it. Me wearing a hat or not wearing a hat, covering my head or not covering, that's got no, in our culture, that doesn't mean anything. But it did for them. It absolutely did for them, and everyone knew what it meant when you did that. So Paul is basically a asking the Corinthians, why are you acting like pagans? This isn't what we believe about God. This isn't what we believe about marriage. Why would you do this? What's interesting to me about this passage as well is the Bible's unending ability to offend, right? So there are, there are pieces of this passage that we as 21st century Seattleites are offended by or don't make sense to us, and they would have been very different from the things that first century Corinthians would have been offended by or scandalized by. Namely, the fact that Paul says that women can pray and prophesy. Did you know that the women who were uh, Jewish converts would never have been able to do that before? That in Judaism, the women weren't even allowed into the same part of the temple as the men were. And in most of these Roman pagan cult religions, the women were not allowed to be anything but the prostitutes. So the fact that Paul says here, a woman cannot pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, and we go, oh, what? And everyone in the first century is going, oh, they can pray and prophesy? And we go, yeah, 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 but that's 2,000 years ago. Here's the thing, it's not. Because just a few blocks that way in the International District, this would still be scandalizing to many of our neighbors and, and surrounding communities. I walked through the International District just the other day and walked past a group of Muslim women in, in full head covering and garb. This is still, this is not 2,000 years ago. This is today, just in other communities which ought to really tamp down our arrogance when we come to a passage like this from a 21st century American viewpoint and go, well, I mean, come on. When our neighbors look at the parts we scoff at as absolutely normal and expected. Now, does that make it right? No, but it ought to tamp down our arrogance and remind us that we come at the scriptures with very specific cultural eyes. And many of, the, many of the reasons, many of the moments that we get offended by the scriptures are a lot more about the cultural cues that we are taking 
than they are about any real kind of deep-rooted biblical convictions. And we ought to be careful about that. Again, we come to the Scriptures carefully. Let's continue. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, just woman from, but, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Now, let me talk about the angels part real quick, because that seems like it comes out of absolutely nowhere. And it kind of does. Now, I will admit, this, what I'm about to tell you is the minority opinion on the topic, but I am not alone in this. The word for angels in the Greek always is a word that simply means messengers, okay? And it's not only, ever, uh, not only used for angels. It's just, in fact, the, the definition in the footnote of my Bible basically just says that someone who is going to give a report about a thing. So what I actually think Paul is saying here is, we don't do it this way. We don't do it like the pagans because there are people around us who will report on what we do. There are, we, we have a reputation, not a reputation to be perfect or a reputation to be pious, but a reputation to rightly represent Christ. A, a, a responsibility to rightly, for the men to not cover their head because that's not the kind of God we serve. For the women to do whatever is a culturally appropriate expression of their faithfulness to their husband because otherwise then what are we saying to the world? That we're the kind of community where, where covenant faithfulness doesn't matter? So I, I think rather than reading that as uh, an issue of angels, I think much more likely this is simply about uh, our reputation among the wider world. But Paul says two things here that are difficult for us that we need to address. He says, for a man, verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Um, this is true. That man, men, males, reflect the image and glory of God. We read that in Genesis chapter 1. This is true. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. What it means to glorify a thing begins to kind of unpack why he might be saying what he's saying, saying it in the way. To glorify is to reflect the character and good of another. The practice of covering one's head is pagan and thus reflects fundamentally different ideas about the relationship between God and men. Women were signaling their availability, which again gives a different idea of their relationship to their husbands. Paul isn't making statements of fundamental truths here. He's addressing the behavior of both the men and the women and instructing them each in their own relevant way. So why is Paul saying men reflect the image of God? and he doesn't say that women do? Is it because Paul doesn't believe women reflect the image of God? No, but because the behavior of the men was the, was the kind of behavior that would cause Paul to have to correct them by saying, don't you forget, you reflect the image of God, so don't put your hood up. That doesn't make any sense. The women aren't doing anything that would require Paul to say, hey, women, remember, you are image bearers of God. That wasn't their issue. So Paul goes to the men and says, you're image bearers of God, so stop covering your head. Now to the women, he says that you are the glory of men. For man was not made for woman, 
but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, what does this mean? This, is, this seems hard, but it's, it's really not if we can just take the time to think carefully about it. He says, woman is the glory of man. Now, man can't take any credit for woman. So if in this moment we would read Paul saying, because um, women came from man, therefore women glorify men, we can't go, yeah, you guys came from us, as if we had anything to do with it, right? Like even in the Genesis 2 account, God puts Adam to sleep. He slept through this situation, right? Even Adam couldn't take credit for this. So what's he saying? Woman was created in order to allow mankind to fulfill its divine mandate to cultivate, care for, and protect God's creation. God gave man that job, but said it is not good for man to be alone. So he created woman. What could that phrase have meant besides, man cannot be and do what I created him for unless he has a complementary relationship that together can image me and accomplish the very reason for which I created. So again, if what glorify means is to act in such a way to reflect the goodness, to reflect the character of another or another being or another person, then absolutely women are meant to glorify their husbands, to be the complementary piece that God looked down at the beginning of time and said, man cannot fulfill the mandate for all of mankind. He needs a helper. He needs someone like we need the Holy Spirit in order to fully be able to live into what I created him for and what I need him to do and be on this earth. So just the same way that Paul is not talking to them about the, uh, women being, bearing the image of God, is, it's because it wasn't their issue. The women he's talking to, their issue was covenant unfaithfulness to their husbands, that they were living in such a way that didn't reflect well on their husbands. They were living in such a way and acting in such a way that left open the possibilities of suspicion of breaking covenant with their husbands and not being the thing for which they were created that ought to remind all of us that God gave us purpose, that God gave us reason. So God, uh, Paul, in this passage, looks at the men and goes, men, you are fundamentally misrepresenting our relationship with God. Here's your reminder. You are made in the image of God. Women, you are fundamentally not accomplishing the purpose for which I made you, which is to glorify your husband, to love your husband, to honor your husband, to be the complementary piece that allows you as a couple to image me and to accomplish my creative work in the world. So I'm going to remind you that your job is to be the glory of your husband, to reflect his character and goodness and to, to complete him, as Jerry Maguire said. So we look at these and we get hung up on the arguments from silence. We look at this and say, well, he doesn't say that women image God. Okay, that wasn't the problem. Paul is a pastor talking to his people, addressing the specific issues that they were having. Verse 11, he comes back to creation. Nevertheless, and I feel like that word nevertheless was could be better translated today as 
chill out. Just remember that the core theological idea, the core truth is that in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things come from God. So listen, I'm addressing these specific issues, but just never forget that at the core of this thing, you aren't independent of each other. You need each other. That's literally been the story from Genesis 1, that we were made for each other, that we together, not just in marriage, but in community, in complementary relationships, can image God and accomplish God's work in the world, the work that he gave us to accomplish. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that it's that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. I'll say that's the only part of this I kind of agree with. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For hair is given her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice as do the churches of God. Basically, Paul just goes, listen, we look around, we, we see the world as it is, as it was in first century Corinth. He goes, this stuff just makes sense, Right? Like women should have long hair, men should have short hair. That's just how it is in our culture, which should, re- which should be a reminder to us that culture changes and expressions of these ideas change, but the core fundamental truths never change. And so in passages like this where it's the cultural expression of the ideas that are challenging to us, that we would respond to that by pressing in and reading more carefully and understanding what it is Paul is actually saying. And at least if you're going to be offended, be offended by what he does say, not what, by what he doesn't say. Because there's plenty to be offense, offended by in the Bible. The Bible can be very offensive, but like don't get offended by the stuff you don't understand. Like push in. And, and, and do your best to understand it. So, what do we do? What does this mean for us? We'll finish with this. First, men, do not forget that your primary command in Scripture is to rightly image God by cultivating, caring for, and protecting His creation. This has massive implications for your work. This has massive implications for everything that you think is important in the world. Two, for those of you who are married, this also means that you are to be as Christ for your, be like Christ for your wife, that you would love her like yourself, that you would be ready to die for her, both metaphorically and actually. Jesus didn't just die metaphorically. For those of you uh, ladies who are married, that your faithfulness to your husband should never be in doubt. Honor him whenever you get the chance. And for all the ladies, remember how much the men in your life need you. Not in a patronizing kind of way, but in a thoughtful, honoring, creation mandate fulfilling kind of way. That we need you. And it's super hard for us to admit that we need you, but we need you. And we need you to, to, to help us to together accomplish what God has given us to do. One final thought. The first thing Paul said was that the head of every man is Christ. I, I don't find it difficult to submit to Christ. 
That doesn't mean I do it all the time. But in theory, I don't find it difficult to submit to Christ because I trust him. I've seen what he's done for me and have no doubt that he has my ultimate best in mind. How could I doubt it? I have seen his death on the cross. I've heard of his deep love for me. So for us as Christians, let us submit to Christ in all things, which will mean submitting to those Christ has asked us to submit to. We submit to authority as if we were submitting to Christ because that's exactly what we're doing. That we believe that Christ has put people in our lives, that God has put people in our lives that we need to submit to. And so he has also called us to submit to those people as if we are submitting to Christ because in the end that is exactly what we're doing, submitting to the fact that God's plan is good because he is good and that we would find rest in that that we are being asked to submit to a God who loved us enough to die for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and are occasionally able to submit to you. There is no one in this world more worthy of our, uh, of our obedience, more worthy of our love, more worthy of our trust than you are. You have demonstrated your trustworthiness by going to the cross for us. You've demonstrated your love for us, your faithfulness to us. So Lord, when we are uh, slow to submit to you, when we're slow to submit to those in our lives that you have placed over us, Lord, may we remember the cross and that we would trust your plan, trust you, and willingly submit our lives to what you have for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, <clears throat> let's look at some questions. We got some good ones. They're all good. Some are just better than others. All right, um, first question. Is it fair or biblical to say that men should submit to their wives and women should die for their husbands? and love them like they love themselves. Uh, in other words, are the roles reversible? Men submit, women die for husband. Um, I'll say uh, two things on this. One is, um, there is no passage in scripture that um, asks women to die for their husbands or to love them like themselves. That's, that's not there. So um, I don't think uh, God would frown upon wives loving their husbands as they love themselves and being willing to die for them. That is certainly a, uh, a, a great, thing to do, uh, but the scriptures don't ask that explicitly of wives to do for their husbands. Um, on, the, on the other side of it, um, there is never a passage where it specifically says for wives or for husbands to submit to their wives. But um, the verse right before Ephesians 5.21 uh, um, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, there is a, a general sense in community that we ought to be submitting to one another and deferring to one another and following one another and caring for one another and loving one another and doing all these things as a general rule for the community, absolutely. I mean, we see all throughout the scriptures the, the one another's, especially in John, right? Love one another, submit to one another, care for one another, all of these one another. So in a communal sense, absolutely. 
in a specifically husband and wife sense, uh, we should generally, yes, love one another and submit to one another. Uh, I can't say that, I mean, the Bible just simply does not say um, wives should love their husbands as Christ loved the church and be ready to die for them, nor does it say specifically that husbands should submit to their wives. So there does seem to be a biblical, un, biblically unique relationship there and how that dynamic is supposed to work. Now, there is also just the general sense of what it means to be humans together and Christians together and loving and submitting happens uh, in, in a general sense as well. So I don't know if that was at all helpful, but it was an answer. All right, number two. I'm wondering why it was okay for Martha, in preparation for Jesus' burial, to pour out perfume on Jesus' feet and wipe it with her own hair. This seems blatantly sexual and intimate of Martha to let down her hair. However, Jesus then defended her and told Judas to leave her alone. He did not comment on the dishonor of her actions. This is true. It's actually one of the more scandalous moments in all of Jesus' ministry. Um, so I'll say a couple things. One is, um, there's not a clear indication of whether Martha is married. We don't know that. Um, we hear about her uh, sister Mary. We hear about her brother Lazarus. We don't hear about a husband. So very well could be that she was single. And so the act of having her hair down, being a single woman, an unmarried woman, would not have been uh, scandalous in that sense. Um, but you do see the reaction of Judas kind of calling out like, hey, gosh, this is, this is a very intimate moment. And, uh, you know, it's always uh, a little risky to uh, ask why or to say why Jesus did things that the scriptures don't specifically say why he did a thing. Um, but I have to imagine that in the presence of all of the other disciples and this woman who is, you know, crying and, and in this moment with community, obviously Mary and Martha were a part of that community, um, that I, I would hesitate, as the question says, uh, I would hesitate to, to refer to it as blatantly sexual, uh, given the context of the really dear friendship that they had and the fact that all of the disciples were present and all of that is going on. Uh, intimate, yes. Blatantly sexual, uh, I doubt it. Uh, number three, uh, why do Christians use these scriptures to justify why women are only allowed to function in certain roles in churches when the scripture clearly outlines that women are necessary for completing the mission of God? Um, so two, two answers to that. One is um, we wouldn't actually use these passages to make that argument. Uh, there are others. Uh, so First Timothy and Titus in particular, uh, as well as First Peter would be passages we would go to to talk specifically about church leadership because that's where Paul and Peter talk about church leadership. Um, but certainly there is a pattern here. And so the second, second part of it uh, is is I think speaks exactly what we talked about tonight. It says when the scripture clearly outlines that women are necessary for completing the mission of God. Absolutely, 100% necessary. That was, I think, one of the main points that I uh, just made. One of the other main points that I made, though, was that it is only humans that place value on the difference of roles. It's not God. So Jesus didn't have a problem with the fact that he was sent by the Father. The Father made the plan and sent him to do the work. Um, the Spirit didn't seem to blanch at the idea that he would be sent by the Son and the Father uh, to do the work after uh, Jesus was done. So 
in the Trinity, there is equality of value and equality of uh, dignity and those things, and yet difference in job and role. So it's humans that make that into a value thing, not God. So there's no question that women are necessary and essential for completing God's work in the world, um, but that doesn't imply, therefore, that everybody should be doing everything, okay? Just as in the Trinity. Uh, all right, number four, last. So this passage is targeted at married women, but what about the single women? I'm not being called to submit to another woman's husband, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. Uh, so the head of the unmarried woman is dot, 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 Christ. Uh, yeah, functionally uh, at this point. I think, um, I think here, here's where passages like this are always hard. Paul is addressing a very specific uh, issue that's happening in the church in Corinth, right? The men were doing this, the women were doing that. Paul is addressing these two issues with the information that they need to, to understand these two issues. What he doesn't do, because he doesn't do everything in every passage, is then zoom out and to give us a, 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 an idea of uh, what, you know, how we're supposed to function in Christian community, how we relate to one another, how we relate to the elders of the church. And this would speak to uh, the other question uh, in, and, and what Paul says in 1 Timothy and in Titus uh, in, in particular, um, that we are all submitting to authority in our lives all the time. Right? And we submit to, in the church, we submit to deacons and elders, we submit to Christ. Uh, in, in, work, in the workplace, we submit to our bosses and managers. Uh, at home, we submit. We, it, like, there's just not a, there's not a context in the world in which there is not authority structure that we are submitted to. So, um, this passage doesn't directly speak to single women because that's not what Paul's dealing with here, right? Like he's talking about the behavior of the married women and how they were showing themselves to be uh, sexually available. And that, that was the problem that he was addressing. So um, to answer your question is to go outside of the scope of this passage, which is fine. Um, and it is simply to say, yeah, like you're, be, you're to be submitted to Christ. There's no question. But I would say you ought to be submitted to community group leaders. You ought to be submitted to mentors. You ought to be submitted to, you know, a, a lot of people in your life, your father and mother. Like, this, the issue of submission is, is a holistic one in which God's created a world that we have our place in and that we are all submitted to Christ ultimately and the authority structures that Christ has put in place. And if we didn't either, A, also overlap value onto those authority structures or constantly want to be autonomous and in charge of ourselves, um, we wouldn't have quite the trouble with submission that we do. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church.